thinking it's one o'clock in the afternoon, so I better take advantage of it. And also, you out there on the phone lines, I just uh, had a call shortly before services, and I had to truncate it early. Uh, the information we had about the church errors and Sardis and so on by that uh, Zeke Ward sent me, I, I wrote him a letter and uh, gave him my phone number, and he called me this morning and uh, was making some sense about a few things, and uh, quite interesting. So I told him, I have to go get in the shower. <laughs> I've got a time constraint, so he's going to call back later. But uh, quite an interesting fellow to talk to and has shed some light on some things for us that truly make sense. So uh, I want to learn all about God's Word and this book, the Bible, as I possibly can. And anything we've overlooked or not grasped or understood, uh, we want to. And uh, I think the Sardis thing, the reaction I've had from most is that uh, as soon as we introduced the thought, it became so very, very clear that that's what it was talking about. Uh, just It's just there. And uh, we were overlooking it because of past thoughts and various things that uh, the ruts that we've been in. And you don't think outside the rut or the box, I guess. So... Sometimes we just have to take another look at things we've glossed over for so many years. Now, this is the first service of the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is meant to be a joyous feast in which we come before God to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and the Apostle John tells us that our fellowship first is with the Father and the Son, and then that our fellowship together afterward is uh, among ourselves, but if we have the fellowship and the relationship with God right, and that is the main focus of our uh, fellowship, then as we fellowship together, that is a spinoff from and should have to do with the relationship we have with our Father in Heaven. So, even though Feast of Tabernacles came to be looked at in Worldwide Church of God more as a vacation, and that was indeed a lot of people's vacation time, uh, but we so often got away from God. We got away from truly spending time with and worshiping Him during the feast. There is no millennium without the Father and the Son. There is no peace on earth in the millennium without the Father and the Son. So, and there's no peace among us without the Father and the Son. So, uh, it is a joyous time, and that will be the primary emphasis of this feast. However, I find scriptures which indicate that the Feast of Tabernacles and the millennium will not be a joy for all. And we'll get to some of those scriptures later. But conditions and circumstances have in a way forced me to uh, approach something today that I did not wish to. I hoped it could be after the feast if it had to be done at all. But uh, we'll get into it here 
and this will be solemn, it will be somber, uh, it will be according to Scripture, and hopefully this afternoon we can get back to something more joyful and productive and helpful that has to do with the joyous part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, let's look first of all at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of Emmanuel, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So God's will, as expressed through Paul here, is that we all speak the same thing. Though there be no divisions, that we be unified that we be close uh, and perfectly joined together. Same mind, same way of thinking, uh, no variance. Now that is uh, a goal. It is a purpose that God has placed upon the church, right? Obviously spoken right here. Uh, mankind throughout history has never lived up to the Word of God. Uh, in any period of time since Adam and Eve, which is a sad testimony to Satan's power over us and human nature that is contrary to God. That is God's goal and purpose for us. Let's see it a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, so here he's using the analogy of the human body to represent the spiritual body of Christ, the church. As the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Meaning, spiritually, the church of God with Christ. Should all be one. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, where... Uh, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we bond or free, uh, have been all made to drink into one spirit, even as he said that in, uh, when they came out of Mitzrayim, that they were all baptized by the same Spirit of God as he delivered them through the Red Sea and through the desert ultimately. So that is a goal and a purpose. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body, and then the ear, and so on? Verse 18, But now has God set the members, every one of them, the body, as it pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet one body. And you can't say one member of the body to another, I have no need of you. Uh, and even the feeble are necessary. End of verse 22. Uh, let's go down to 25. That there should be no schism, no division, no dividing, no scattering in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be dishonored, all the members rejoice with it. And then he shows that we are all members in particular or set apart by God as members. And he's placed us in the body as he desired. And then he gives different offices and so on that he put within the church 
So we, uh, we may be a pinky fingernail, or we may be head, or heart, or lungs, or arms, or legs, or some part of the body, and God will set us there as He so chooses and pleases, because He calls us into the body. We don't join the church of God. He opens the mind, and no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So, if you had your mind opened and became knowledgeable of the truths of God, then God had to open that mind. How many of us have tried to open the minds of our friends and relatives and so on and got nowhere? Absolutely nowhere, because God had not opened that mind yet. Now, in the second resurrection, which we'll... uh, typify on the last great day, those minds will be opened. And minds will be opened at the beginning of the millennium for those who survive the Holocaust that is about upon us. So God will open them sometime, but you can't do it. It's up to Him when He chooses. And everybody at one time or another will have their mind opened and have a chance to be a part of the kingdom of God. But that is God's wish, that we be not divided, that we all be together as one. 1 Corinthians 3 now. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, normal, fleshly, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto, or before now, you were not able to bear it, Neither yet now are you able, for you were yet fleshly, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? So, if there be divisions, if there be envying and strife, uh, upset, argument, uh, all those things that are negative, then that is from the roots of carnality. It is not godly. The fruit of God's Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. They are good emotions, if you will, all 13 of them. And just before that in Galatians 5, it talks about the works of the flesh, which are all the negative emotions. So, he says, if there is strife, if there is division, uh, if there is arguing and fighting and lying and all of those works of the flesh, then that is not of God. Now, those things are satanic. Those attitudes are satanic. They come from Satan, the devil. And Adam and Eve did not have those emotions until Satan influenced them. And then the jealousy and the anger and the blame... And all those negative things began to come out in them immediately. They had been at one. They had been at peace. They had a wonderful marriage, a wonderful relationship, and a wonderful relationship with God until Satan entered the picture. And immediately after he entered, they began to accuse one another. They even began to accuse God, as some people throughout history have. And their relationship deteriorated and finally wound up even with murder among their children 
And they did not have a very peaceful, good relationship with God or man throughout the 900 plus years that they lived. So, you know, by the fruit, that when you have negative emotion, accusation, Satan being the accuser of the brethren, that satanic influence, carnal human influence, is there. Now, as I read at the last of the sermon a few days ago on atonement, we should be thinking in terms of Philippians 4, verse 8. All the good emotions. Those should suffuse us. They should fill our minds and our hearts. We should be thinking upward, not downward. And when people begin to get in accusing, uh, seeking of sin, or whatever attitudes, that cannot be of God because it is not a godly approach. I think we should all follow that. Now, you and I all have upward emotions toward God and hopefully toward each other. But being carnal and being still influenced to one degree or another by Satan, every one of us has to fight the negative, the down-pulling, the accusing, the condemnative, uh, the judging. And that in itself is idolatry. I hope we grasp that. Any time we put our judgment ahead of God's judgment, whatever it will be with each individual, we are committing idolatry. doesn't matter what God says about this person. I know. I have the facts. I have the this. I have the that. And I know they're evil. That is idolatry. We have to be very, very careful. Does that mean we should blind our eyes to, to wrongdoing? No. But we need to be careful that we do not become self-righteous and look down upon people or try to thwart them. We should be here to help each other, to forgive each other, to show mercy as God is merciful. But when we start trying to tear, to rip, to divide, then we are doing Satan's work. And it doesn't matter what charges are on the table. It doesn't matter whether accusation is right or wrong. That's beside the point. The point is, God does not tear down. God lifts up. So it's the attitude here that we're discussing. It is the approach that has to be right. A lot of people use Matthew 18, for instance, as a hammer. If you read the whole chapter carefully, it's not a hammer at all. It is a meek, humble approach to try to mend the relationship or reconcile parties together so that they can be loving brothers and sisters it is not there to prove them wrong or to condemn or chasten or punish. So you've got to use what God gave as a proper tool, not use it as Satan would use it, but use it as God would use it to heal, to help, to strengthen. That's what it's for. And that should be our goal, that should be our attitude and our outlook.
So, if we see envy, strife, and division, we're looking at carnality. We're looking at Satanism, is what we're looking at. Because that isn't God's purpose, it isn't his goal, it isn't what he does. He seeks to unify. Now let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Now here was a situation that Paul was not there physically to handle, but it was something that was blatant, it was open, it was known by everybody to be happening, and even the participants themselves were kind of snidefully uh, proud of it, vain about it. They weren't trying to do anything to resolve it. It was just right out in the open. And Paul mentions that. It is reported commonly that there is fornication or sexual sin among you, and such sin as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, the one should have his father's wife. So this was not only the norm, I didn't say good, the norm of adultery or fornication uh, that is common uh, among people around the world and always has been. But this is something where incest was also involved, a truly, totally wrong relationship in every way, unnatural, even as homosexuality and lesbianism is unnatural. Uh, there are natural sins, heterosexuality, they're sin, they're wrong, they'll keep you out of the kingdom of God. But these, we're talking perversion here on top of adultery plus perversion. And you are puffed up, and if not, rather mourned. So, remember we're talking about the Corinthians. And in Corinth, you had probably the most immoral, ungodly society that you could have. Perhaps somewhat equatable to Sodom and Gomorrah. So they had all kinds of perversions going on in Corinth, and it was ungodly entirely. And not only that, they're kind of proud of it. Just as we have gay pride uh, parades today. It's not something that they recognize from Romans 1 and from the Old Testament that is illegal and is an abomination to God who made man and woman. And they try to hide it. Now they've come right out in the open with it and are proud of it. So we have these marches and these parades of gay pride. Well, something was happening similar to that in the church at Corinth. So Paul is not addressing a situation here of private sin that people were ashamed of and needed to repent of, which would be the case, normally speaking. Uh, there, there was a time, and it still is to some degree in our society, where when people commit sin, they are ashamed of it. They don't put it right out in the open. But our society has become that now. I mean, shacking up is just part of life anymore. That's just the way you do things. Everybody does it. doesn't make it right. But they're no longer ashamed of it like they were 50 or 100 years ago. So he says, you've been proud and puffed up over this, and should have been mourning it, should have been heartsick about it, that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So this was something of a serious nature, and the person involved uh, should not have been there anymore, much less bragging and everybody patting him on the back 
thinking this was normal. So then Paul continues, For I truly, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already. So this was something the apostle, the minister over the church in Corinth, even though he traveled a lot and wasn't there much, he had heard it and knew that it was very common knowledge. So he said, I've already made a judgment on this concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Emmanuel, when you were gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Emmanuel to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Emmanuel. Now he said a mouth, mouthful there in that he was actually saying that in putting this person away from them, he was literally turning them over to Satan and Satan's world for Satan to do with them as he pleased, even to the destruction or death of the flesh. Now, that's a pretty severe judgment, is it not? Now, his goal and his purpose in separating and dividing off any such one was so that they might repent and change and grow and overcome and be part of the kingdom of God someday. Again, as Ezekiel 33 says, if the wicked turn from his way and become righteous, he will be saved. But if he, the righteous turn to wickedness, he will not be saved. So God's way is equal. And maybe in life we go from wicked to righteous to wicked to righteous. We can do that from day to day and moment to moment for that matter. You know, like the person that said, well, dear God, I, I haven't sinned today, but now I need to get up out of bed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I doubt if there's one of us here that does not break the Ten Commandments, at least one of them, which is all of them. Uh, every day. I personally have a record in that I have never broken more than ten. That, that's, that's the sum total that I've ever broken in one day. Whether it's not doing something I should do, or doing something I shouldn't do, or thinking something I shouldn't think, or putting myself ahead of God, or whatever, uh, we all manage, I think, to to show less love for God every day than we ought to, and probably less love for each other than we ought to. Those are the two summations of the law, and the law and the prophets hang on those two. Love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as much as yourself. And I dare say every one of us falls short of those two goals, those two commandments, every day uh, in some form or fashion. We may not be physically committing those sins, but emotionally and spiritually, we undoubtedly do, because we still have the influence of Satan, and we still have, to one degree or another, our carnal nature that has not been made to completely walk in the Spirit. And Paul said he fought himself daily to try to stay in the right mind or frame of mind. So, he says... I'm going to treat this individual who was proudly sinning like a worldly person that Satan has sway over and can do as he sees fit with 
they will no longer come under God's protection, God's help and guidance, because they need to learn to repent. Now, this was an egregious sin. He says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, if they were to allow that to continue within the church, uh, pretty soon it would just keep spreading and spreading until they were all more infected than they were at that time. So, he said to purge out that leaven, that you be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ didn't come to this earth to condemn the world. He didn't come to put it down. He didn't come to say, look, I live perfectly and you sinned, therefore you die. He came to the earth to save sinners, to help people, to give them an example of how to live so that they could live eternally. That was his whole goal and purpose for being here. So his approach was positive. Now, he called a snake a snake at times. There's no doubt about it. But for the most part, that was not his message and should not be ours. Uh, so he said, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not our old way of thinking, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Those are negative emotions. Those are carnal, fleshly emotions. They're not godly emotions. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, as Philippians 4, 8 says. I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, so he had told them before that if there were fornicators, they were not to have company with them, they were not to be around them. And he gives explicit instructions here. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world. You know, we have the world around us and they're doing their thing, and our fellowship is not with them. Our fellowship is with God and with his people for the most part. Now, Christ at times did sit down even with the Pharisees and Sadducees and publicans and have dinner. He did uh, have a certain amount of relationship with even people in the world. In fact, all relationships that he had were people in the world, if you stop to think about it, because there had not been one called yet until he called his disciples and they were in training and didn't even yet have the Spirit of God within them, uh, not begotten until after he left, and it came on the day of Pentecost. So he did have a certain amount, and he said, so that's why he says, you can't completely divorce yourself from the world because you have to do business with them, you have to work for them, you have to do a certain amount and have a certain amount of contact with them. He says, if, you're not, if you don't have some contact with the world, then you'll have to leave the earth. But now I've written to you, this is more specific and has to do with the church of God. Not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, uh, someone who rails against others, or seeks to find wrong and accusation and sin among them, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. So, he lists several sins here, that if people are doing those things, they should be put aside, and we should not even eat with them. They should, we should not have a relationship with them. 
For what I have to do to judge, what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not you judge them that are within. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, later on, after they had complied with what Paul told them to do, he was the apostle and there was government, if you will. Then when the person did repent, they wouldn't accept him back. That also was ungodly. It was ungodly to take that outright open sin and not do something about it. But then when it was repented of, uh, then they got self-righteous and said, well, we're not going to have you back. And Paul <coughs> then uh, condemned them for that. Says, you know, if the repentance is there, the sin no longer exists. It's gone. How many of us carry over people's sins and slights that we think they've done to us Passover after Passover after Passover, and we still hold or bear a grudge or an attitude. And we're unchristlike in that. How many of us hold it past sundown every day? That is ungodly. And he says not to let our wrath exist past sunset. Get over it before the day is over. I doubt any of us have lived up to that one yet, or not daily anyway. Now let's go to Romans 16. Now here again, uh, this is in context of Paul and his administration of the churches. Uh, Luke is, oh no, no, Paul wrote Romans, I'm sorry. This is about the church and church administration. And he's directing it to both the ministry and to the members of the church. So he says in verse 17, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Stay away from them. Don't go around them. Don't have a relationship with them. Don't speak to them in that sense. You're not to have communication with them. They are to be cut off and delivered to Satan the devil for the destruction of the flesh until repentance occurs. So anyone who is causing division in the body of Christ is to be completely avoided. For they that are such serve not our Lord Emmanuel, but their own belly, themselves. Their own, the belly is the uh, place of emotion. It's where you feel compassion. It's where, where you feel hurt. It's when there's difficulty, what knots up? Your stomach knots up. When there's strife, there's anger, there's division, there's disturbance, your stomach grabs. So this isn't necessarily just a desire of food but it has to do with emotion and feeling and so on, that when people are causing division and offense and difficulty, uh, they're serving their own emotions, their own feelings, and will see their own imaginations. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. 
So he's warning about people who seem to be of good word. They seem to be of fair speech. But there is a different motive behind what they are doing. We'll see in a moment about wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's what we're talking about here, is the result of what they are doing is causing division and trying to pull people away from what God has established to do their own thing. That's division. That's schism. That is ungodly. You know, when I left, Church of the Great God was actually more or less disfellowshipped over the calendar issue. I did not contact one person and try to convince them that I was right. I simply left, walked away, and did what I felt I needed to do to obey God. But I did not call anyone and try to take them with me. Not one person. I did a year or two or three later. I was going through a town and there was a lady just down the street a block that I knew had some problems with her husband and this and that from years past. And I did stop in and say hi. I did not bring up anything about calendar or division or anything else. I just said hello. That was the only one I ever contacted. And it wasn't to do it in a wrong way and it wasn't to try to divide. Because it doesn't matter how good or how bad we are or the church is or how good or how bad I am, it is ungodly to divide. That's the bottom line. And usually people who are trying to divide are going to appear to be righteous. They're going to appear to be sweet and loving and kind and gentle. That's the way a sheep is. But inside, if there are thoughts of division, of finding sin, of seeking for and looking, a witch hunt, if you will, that is ungodly. Witches are ungodly. Witch hunts are ungodly. Do we understand that? I think we do. But what do we do about it? That's the question. What do we do about it? God does not seek sin. God tries to forgive and cover sin. That's his glory, he says. Well, are we thinking like God or are we thinking like man and Satan? Man and Satan are curious about sin. They want to find sin. And Satan just loves to find any sin he can and take it to the Father in heaven and accuse, which he does daily before the throne of God until he is cast away. He revels in it. Now, people might not revel in it in the church in terms of being so happy they find it, but there is a level at which we look for in hopes of finding something and then using it to divide because so-and-so is unrighteous or so-and-so is unrighteous or whatever. Accusation is ungodly. It is satanic. That's Scripture. That's not me speaking. That's Scripture. The accuser of the brethren. So anyone who is intent on dividing is going to come with good words and fair speech, and they're going to appear as righteous as they possibly can. We need to understand that. 
they don't come with their teeth bared and their tail wagging like a wolf. They put on sheep's clothing so that they appear to be something that inside they truly are not. What does a wolf do with a sheep? It divides it. It tears the leg off. It eats into the stomach, eats the entrails, and eventually devours the whole sheep. They start on the soft parts, though. They always start in the middle and eat the guts first. And then they branch out and eat the rest. And wolves in the flock do the same thing. They'll try to pick on those that they think might be soft or weak or whatever. The analogies in the Bible are very, very real. Second uh, Timothy 4. Paul dealt with this throughout his ministry. And in Second Timothy 4, he addresses it a little bit, even calls names here. Second uh, Timothy 4, verse 4. Or is that where I'm? Oh, verse 14, I'm sorry. No wonder it didn't look right. Or is it First Timothy? I think I, I must have written it down wrong. It was right at the end. It was about Alexander the coppersmith. 4.14. Oh, it's on the other side of the page. Excuse me. Second Timothy 4.14. Had it right. Just didn't go there. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The eternal reward him according to his works. So here was a man in the church who had done a great deal of evil toward Paul himself. Now let's see what he says about it. Of whom beware also... You also beware of him, for he has uh, greatly withstood our words. He has stood against the things that Paul was saying, against him in some form or another. Uh, he says, at my first answer, no man stood with me. So whatever Alexander the coppersmith had brought up, the allegations he made, accusations he made, uh, standing against what Paul was teaching or whatever. What it doesn't, he doesn't say here what all the accusations might have been. But he said, when it happened, no man stood with me. Everybody believed Alexander the coppersmith and whatever it was that he was alleging. They swallowed it hook, line, and sinker because it seemed so right. Could that happen in the church of God, where one man could turn the whole congregation against Paul? Yes, it did. It's what he says. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. He doubles it there. Not only didn't stand with, but forsook. I pray that God, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. As Christ said, forgive them, Father, they know what they do. Stephen said the same thing. It's, uh, it's the attitude God would have. Uh, hopefully they'll repent, they'll change their attitude, and be saved before it's all over. 
You see, that's, that's a godly approach of mercy and compassion, even though this guy had taken away every man that was there, whatever the circumstances were. Let's go to Proverbs 6. I had first thought of taking some action in a five-minute announcement, but because I didn't want to take away from the Feast of Tabernacles and the joy that it is. And yet, on the other hand, I think we need a full explanation uh, in biblical terms of what is godly and what is not godly. Proverbs 6 and verse 16. These six things does the eternal hate. Here are six things that God absolutely hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, there's sin, and then on top of that is something that is even worse than, let's say, a normal sin. It is an utter abomination to God. And we're going to see in a scripture later on that nothing abominable will enter into the kingdom of God. So an abomination is something that precludes us from being in the kingdom of God. We're about to read some salvational issues. This has to do with whether or not people will be in the kingdom of God or not. Nothing abominable will be there. Okay? Verse 17, a proud look. We are not to have pride in any form or fashion. Even the father himself did not say he was proud of his son. It's common for people to say, I'm so proud of you, son. No, God showed no pride. I'm well pleased with you. We as human beings have proud looks all the time. We get defensive, we get proud, we get putting ourselves up and putting others down. That's pride. We are to esteem others as good as ourselves and even put them ahead of us at some times. In other words, we sacrifice for the good of others. But we are never to think of our neighbors as less than us. And if we do, that is a form of pride. God hates it. There will be no proud in the kingdom of God. won't be any there. A lying tongue. Now, virtually everybody on earth lies at one time or another, whether it's a little litty white one or a great big black one, uh, everybody has lied. There is not a human being who has not lied. And if you say you never have, then voila, you're a liar. Oh, God considers lying an abomination. And hands that shed innocent blood. So, whether you're speaking physically of Cain killing Abel, or whether you're speaking of spiritual murder and assassination by uh, destruction of reputation or whatever, that is a form of spiritual murder. So any time we backbite, any time we stab somebody in the back, we are shedding blood. And too frequently it's innocent blood. Because the things that we imagine and the things that we impute motives to 
very often aren't truly the case. That isn't what occurred. So it becomes, even though you think it was true, it becomes a lie. Uh, a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Now we know that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. So what is a wicked imagination? The imagination occurs within our minds, right? That's, that's where you imagine things. So when you imagine things, if the things you imagine are wicked, if they are scenarios or ideas or thoughts of wickedness about someone else, that is a wicked imagination. It may not even be true. But we tend to have minds that if we have a thought, so-and-so might be doing such-and-such. We let it go through our minds and we imagine that that could be true. And then since it went through our mind, and our mind is so wonderful, it then becomes truth to us. We believe it. Even though it was a wicked imagination, a fantasy of the mind, based on either nothing or simple circumstantial evidence, where we think, oh, there must be something wicked there, because of something we see that may be totally innocent. You see a guy come walking out of the bar. You think, oh, he's been in there drinking. How do you know? He might have gone in there to pay a bill or something. Might have owed somebody something that ran the bar. Might have bought a car from them, went in to pay for it. But you automatically assume he went in there to drink. See how circumstantial evidence can get you in trouble? So, evil imaginations or wicked imaginations. We are not 2 Timothy 5.19, or is it 1 Timothy? Anyway, Paul tells Timothy there that they, he is not even to hear, not listen to, any accusation against one of the elders unless they had two, or even better, three actual eyewitnesses of an actual sin. That is the only way you could even listen to it, much less make a judgment on it. Eyewitnesses are very, very important. In the Old Testament, if a girl claimed she was raped out in the field, and there was no one around to hear her cry for help, she was not stoned because there had been no one around who could hear the cry, so with no eyewitnesses, you couldn't condemn her. There was no one who saw what happened out in that field. Now, if she were in town and attacked or raped, and she yelled, people were around who would hear the cry and would come and help rescue. Unless it's New York, but I mean normally. And then she was to be stoned because there were eyewitnesses there who said it was consensual 
and she was lying. So eyewitnesses in anything, and it's not just of the ministry of the elders, because in the Old Testament there had to be eyewitnesses with anybody, any sin. You couldn't have one-on-one accusation. That's just he said, she said. That's just rumor. It means nothing without at least two witnesses of the actual crime or sin. Okay? Let's get straight in our minds what God requires. Is he going to send one witness against the world? No, he's going to send two. He always does that. And they will be men who have lived in this world and have seen what is going on and will be able to make that witness before God of what the world is. So that's God's way. It isn't man's way. We ourselves can dream up something, imagine something, and we can establish it on our own mind then as true because we believe it. Then we can judge and we condemn and sentence before we even let the other person know what it is that we've dreamed up. All on some silly little circumstantial thing that may not have been wrong at all. Let that sink in deeply. That's an abomination that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Says God. Feet that be swift and running to mischief. Oh my, have you heard what I heard? I will run and tell my neighbor. I'll get on the telephone. I'll get on the text. I'll get on email. I'll get on Facebook. I'll get wherever I can get. And just as fast as my feet and my fingers will fly, I will spread this. Because I believe it's true. Ungodly. Totally ungodly. All right, a false witness that speaks lies. Now, a false witness can know they're a false witness. They can deliberately lie. Or there are those who take something that is said or something they imagined and turn it into truth in their own mind, but it's still a lie. You can believe something that can, is true, and it may not be true. Have you ever done that? I have. I have very often found, well, I, you know, I think such and such must be happening. And then I would find out a minute or a day or a month or a year later, I'd read it wrong. I was absolutely wrong about what I thought might have been. God does not deal in might have beens. But we do. And that's not God's way. So you can tell somebody you're lying, and they'll say, no, I'm not, because they actually believe, or have caused themselves to believe, that what they're saying is true, and it's not at all. See why God hates that? And he that sows discord among brethren. We've already read several scriptures about division, schism, dividing. God considers that an abomination. 
I suspect that every one of us, at one time or another, has violated every one of those. I have. I don't live that way every day, but I'll guarantee you at some time or another in my life, and maybe more frequently than I should have, I have imputed motives or imagined things or said things that might have caused a certain amount of discord. Proverbs tells us also that a whisperer can divide even chief friends because they whisper things to one or the other of the chief friends and turn them against one another. Happened in grade school all the time, didn't it? High school. Happens in life all the time. People can be very close, and then somebody comes up and says, Hey, you know what so-and-so's thinking? You know what so-and-so did? And through their envy or jealousness or deciding they want to be the closest friend or whatever, they divide even chief friends. Now, that's just plain wrong. It is ungodly. It is an abomination. Let's go to Acts 20. Acts 20, and begin in verse 24. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of Emmanuel to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. He knew he was going to be martyred uh, pretty soon. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. He had been falsely accused by Rome and by the Jews, and he was going to be killed with false accusation. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, Take heed, therefore. He says, I've been falsely accused and I'm about to die. So he says, then, listen, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Here he's actually referring more to the ministry, that they are to think and watch. For I know this. That after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. They will rip, they will tear, they will bite, they will chew, they will kill. Ungodly. Also of your own selves, within the church, within the ministry, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So even in the ministry, there would arise those who would seek followers of themselves and would try to destroy what God had built through the apostles, including Paul. Sad, but true. Go on to Matthew 7. And here I want verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15. 
Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now, what does a ravening wolf do? He tears the flock. You have a flock that is together. They stay together. If you've ever herded sheep, you know that if you try to divide one off the rest of the flock, he will absolutely jump straight into you, straight into a wall, to try to get with the rest of the flock. He does not want to be divided off. Sheep have a very, very strong flock instinct. And I've absolutely been run through, run over by sheep because I was trying to cut them out of the flock. But here he warns that there will be some who are ravening wolves. Now, it doesn't matter what the flock It doesn't matter if it's a very, very healthy, strong flock with good wool, or whether it's an uncared-for, bedraggled, half-starved bunch of sheep. It's still a flock. And the wolf doesn't care. A wolf attacks a flock, and whatever that flock is, he will drag down whatever he can and kill it and eat it. That's what wolves do. Now, how did David approach wolves in the flock when he was herding sheep? Did he go to them and sit down in front of them and say, Now, wolf, you're trying to kill these sheep, and, uh, you know, that's a a no-no. You're not supposed to eat my sheep. Now, you need to stop that, or we'll have words again. He doesn't sit down one to one with the wolf. That wolf is not, in that sense, betraying or trespassing against David. He's trespassing against the flock. And there's going to be some dead sheep if there's not intervention made. So, when you see someone as a shepherd trying to divide or cut out or pull away from the flock, or if you use the body, jerk an arm off, whatever, You deal with it, and you deal with it strongly. David killed the bear. David killed the lion with his bare hands. Now, God is merciful, and God is compassionate. God is loving. He's slow to anger. His mercy endures forever. And yet he says, I will deal with the wicked. And he will. And those who remain wicked will go into the lake of fire. And God will burn them up, and they will never be remembered or known again. If they are committing the abominations of Proverbs 6, that's where they're going, unless they repent. If they repent, they'll be saved. So there's no mercy with false prophets or those who try to divide away. Now, let's go for a moment to Revelation 21. I've referred to this several times, but here it is in black and white. Revelation 21, verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. 
But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, which we just read about in Proverbs 6, and murderers, spiritual or physical, whoremongers, spiritual or physical, sorcerers, idolaters, those who put anything else, including themselves, ahead of God, and all liars, so even innocuous-seeming sins to man, liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, this context is of the beginning of the millennium when the bride of Christ comes down. So, in one sense, what I am speaking of today is a millennium sermon. Because there's a sad side to the millennium. A very sad side. Let's go on to verse 27. Here it's talking about the Father and the Son being here on the earth, and they are the temple and they are the light within. And it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, nothing unclean, Haggai 2, neither whatsoever works abomination, Proverbs 6 describes what those are, or makes a lie. Not just repeats a lie, but actually evil imagination dreams up a lie if you will, makes a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So people who are doing the things that he mentions in this chapter will not be in the kingdom of God. God says there will be peace there in the millennium and thereafter. And sin will no longer be known. So if we want to be in the kingdom of God... We have to be very careful, and we have to seek God with our whole heart. Isn't that what he tells us, Jeremiah? When you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. We have the scattered church of God today who is not seeking God with its whole heart. They're seeking their own goals and purposes, whatever they are, and they don't even know what God is trying to do right now for the most part. 99 point whatever percent. We'll see that later as we explore the Philadelphia era. Okay? So he says there, makes it very clear, chapter 22, right at the end of the book. Verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, not just hear them, but do them, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city, For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. Sometimes we love the imaginations of our own mind and emotions. And we play with them, and we toy with them, and we turn them into all kinds of things. Now, if you do that within your own mind, it doesn't hurt anyone else doesn't make it right, but it doesn't hurt anyone else. But when you offer to share those with others, it does hurt someone else. Now, let's say somebody here that we know and love goes to Las Vegas and they knock off a liquor store or rob a bank, whatever they do, to get some money. And then they hire two hookers and spend a few nights, and then they gamble the rest away, 
And then, deciding to leave town, they strangle two homeless and leave them dead on the street and come home. And keep their mouth shut. Does it hurt the church? Hurts that member, unless they repent deeply. But if they don't say anything and nobody knows, it doesn't hurt, divide, cause trouble and lack of trust and lack of confidence within the church, does it? That which you don't know, even though it might be an egregious sin, does not hurt others. Now, if someone or the perp himself tells the story, and then it goes out, it begins to hurt people. It begins to shake people in the relationship to that person. And it will expand and get worse and worse. Because it isn't the sin itself, which is evil and abominable, don't get me wrong. It is the spreading of that knowledge that divides and hurts and causes trust and confidence to wane and to be destroyed. Those who spread it are as bad, and in some cases you might say worse than, the actual sin itself, when put that way. It wasn't the sin that did it, it was the knowledge of the sin, the spreading of the sin that caused the damage. If the person did it and repented from the heart before God, confess and forsake is to God, and confession booths are Catholic, they're not godly. The real damage comes from the gossips, the rumor spreaders, the evil imaginers who spread what they have decided is true. I speak plainly. Let's go quickly to the book of Jude, which is just before Revelation. This will be the last reference that I plan to use. But Jude was writing here toward the end of the New Testament era of the Ephesian era, and there was a great falling away. So he told uh, everyone that this would go to, in verse 3, to that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The truth, good knowledge, good attitudes, everything. For there are certain men crept in unaware, they kind of sneak in, they don't announce what they are or what they're doing, who are before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace, the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness of God into lawlessness and trying to exert the death penalty on others. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Emmanuel. See, when you turn to satanic tactics, you're indeed denying God because He doesn't have those attitudes. Hate, bitterness, anger, 
uh, accusation, are not attitudes of God. So if you allow those attitudes in your mind and emotions, you are denying God, even though you think you're worshiping God, and you are righteous, and whatever it is, you are condemning as lawless. In other words, you're trying to invoke the Old Testament on people rather than the New Testament. That's ungodly. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Eternal, having saved the people out of the land of Mitzrium, afterward destroyed them that believed not. He delivered them. He brought us into the church, didn't he? He opened our minds, converted us. But if we turn from that, it's like a sow to her wallow or a dog to his vomit. Very, very dangerous. He saved them and then he had to destroy them because they didn't really believe. The angels, which kept not their first estate, worship of God. Uh, holy angels, righteous, obedient, became rebels and are held in everlasting chains and will be forever. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves to fornication and going after homosexuality and set, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God just blotted them out. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers, they're thinking of things that may not actually be true, but they've imagined them and decided they were true and then repeated them. Filthy dreamers, dreaming of filth. Defile the flesh, despise dominion. They defile those around them, and they despise the dominion that God has given. The leadership. And speak evil of dignitaries. We have to be very, very careful to speak evil of any that God has put into a position of authority or overseeing or shepherds or whatever. And that is throughout the Bible. From beginning to end, we're not to do that. Yet Michael, the archangel, uses a good example. When contending with the devil himself, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him a railing accusation, but said, The Eternal rebuke you. So here was one of God's holy cherubim, holy angel. And when Satan tried to take the body of Moses, Michael did not give a railing accusation against him, but he said, the eternal rebuke you. He deferred to God rather than condemning himself, or condemning uh, Satan himself. So when you see somebody who is in the mode of accusation toward those mentioned above, the eternal rebuke you, or get behind me, Satan, or however you might phrase it at the moment. It is ungodly. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. They don't really know, they have no witness, but they speak evil against. Utterly condemned by God. But what they know naturally is brute beasts, and those things, they corrupt themselves. 
So they're corrupting themselves when they're in that kind of an ungodly attitude. Anytime you see that attitude, it is not of God. Just not. Can't be. Even Michael understood that. I say even Michael. And he was careful about those that God had put in a position of authority. And Satan is in a position of authority as the present evil ruler, or present ruler of this evil world, and deceiving the whole world. I don't rail against Satan, do you? I live in fear of God, and when I sense Satan's presence around, I say the eternal rebuke you, Satan. I have no power over Satan. I have no power over people's attitudes and their beliefs. They'll believe what they want to believe, and he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So they're really corrupting themselves by having satanic emotions and attitudes. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Mentioned several different examples there in one spot. Now, not everybody has every one of those, but if you got one of them, you're in trouble. Just as Korah and his whole family uh, were swallowed up of the earth when they spoke against Moses. That's just Bible. Sorry. Anytime you bring these things up, people say, you comparing me to Korah? I don't know. If the shoe fits, wear it. These are spots in your feast of charity. Spots on our garments are not good. We have to get rid of those and have righteous white garments. And he says, people with that kind of attitude are spots in your feast. Feeding themselves without fear. If they have those attitudes, they think they're right. And they feed on those attitudes, and they try to spread those attitudes, and they try to have people come to believe and have the same attitude that they have. Feeding themselves, their own emotion, their own beliefs, their own evil thoughts, without fear. Thinking this is of God. No. Those emotions, those approaches, are totally ungodly. We should see that by now. Clouds they are without water. You know, you can have clouds come up, but if rain doesn't come out of them, they kind of don't do much good, right? Well, people can raise all kinds of clouds, but is there really water? Carried about of winds. We're not to be torn by every wind of doctrine, are we? Trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Satanic attitudes, malicious attitudes, accusative attitudes, all the works of the flesh of Galatians 5 cause godly fruit to perish. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Satan is consigned to that. And people who follow the satanic pattern will also be darkened and never be seen again. 
Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Eternal comes with ten thousands of his saints. 144,000 is tens of thousands, not millions or billions. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he defines the attitudes that are involved. These are murmurers, people who murmur and complain. Bitch and cry, if you will. Complainers. Anyone who complains. Complaining is not of God. Whatever it is you're complaining about, it is not of God. A godly attitude would be, let's forgive, let's have mercy, let's help, let's strengthen, let's gain a brother. Complaining doesn't do a bit of good. Walking after their own lusts, their own desires, their own paths, their own goals. And their mouths speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in advantage or in admiration because of advantage. So they'll spread their murmuring and complaining to others, hoping to gain an advantage with other people. But beloved, now here's a message to us. But beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Emmanuel, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last times who would walk after their own ungodly lusts or desires, appetites. These be they. Okay? He defines it. Now, you might say, I don't have lusts, and I'm righteous, and I'm this, and yet if you're mocking others, whoever they might be, he says, here is the definition Excuse me of what I'm talking about. These be they who separate themselves. See, the body of Christ is to be united. It is to be bonded together, piece by piece, put in the body where God wants it. But those who separate themselves are doing a wrong thing, according to God through Jude. Sensual, going by emotion. The senses, the five senses. Not by godliness, but by the five senses. Having not the Spirit. See? They might be somewhat converted. They might actually have the Spirit of God. But murmuring and complaining and separating are not of the Spirit. Those are of Satan the devil. But you, beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Emmanuel unto eternal life. And then he tells us how to handle things as they come along. Of some have compassion, making a difference. And there are those who are inadvertently sucked in by what we've just been reading about. And they are, in a sense, an innocent lamb who has been deceived and led into these things. You can have compassion there, making a difference. Others save with fear. 
putting them out of uh, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So you have to understand attitude. Where is someone headed? What are they doing? Some you handle with mercy and compassion and help them see the error. Others you have to jerk out of the fire because they're not going to listen to anything else. As Paul said earlier, turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that maybe in this life what they go through will lead them to repentance in the kingdom of God, that being the ultimate goal and purpose of all of us. Now, this all being said, it grieves me very deeply. I am very sad. I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. Because we have had those who have been tearing at the flock, murmuring, complaining, leading away from this body of Christ. Maybe they don't consider it the body of Christ now, but I do. I believe God started it on purpose. I believe He has a reason for this group to be here. But there are those who think they see unrighteousness here, there, or everywhere, or anywhere. And they think they're right. They don't think they're wrong. They think they're right. But any time you lift your hand or your mouth to accuse, to betray, to backbite, to stab, to have any of the attitudes of the works of the flesh, you have departed from God and you're thinking like Satan the devil. Anytime you seek to pull someone away from where they are, destroy their confidence, destroy their trust, make accusation, you're thinking like the devil. And we have those who have been doing this for quite some time now. And I have been remiss, and I apologize to you. I have waited and waited and waited. God has shown me in my lifetime, in spite of the fact that I'm a brand plucked out of the tribulation or the lake of fire, God has shown me personally an awful lot of mercy and forgiveness and patience. And He says He will forgive me if I forgive others. So I have tried to be that way, and to some degree, it has hurt the flock over the years. When a wolf comes in and begins to tear, you deal with the wolf immediately and through death of the wolf or the lion or the bear or whatever it is. Even though they appear to be wearing sheep's clothing and they're... They're kind and they're nice and they're subtle and they're trying to destroy behind the scenes. We've had a lot of that. I'm not against any of these people. I hope they come to see that they're not thinking godly and that they change. But in the meantime, since they are hurting this flock and trying to divide it, by spreading evil or sin, which God does not do. He covers it under the blood of Christ. And if you dig around under God's Christ's stake, trying to find sin that has been covered by His blood, 
you are committing idolatry. God has judged our sins forgivable and forgiven if we've repented before Him, whoever we are. And to dig around in His blood is abominable. Trying to find sin. That has been going on. Now there are those who have withdrawn themselves or disfellowshipped themselves from this congregation and they've chosen not to have fellowship. I think some of them are not by any means wolves or bears or lions trying to destroy. Let me make that clear. But they have had their confidence and their trust and their belief impinged upon by others. And perhaps there is room for compassion and making a difference. But those who have pushed and looked for and tried to find sin and then spread it have been causing division. And I am, as the pastor of this congregation, its shepherd, turning them over to the destruction of the flesh, hoping they will repent. Only doing what Paul did, which Christ did with the Pharisees. He says, I'll have nothing to do with you again until you accept the apostles I have sent. He consigned them to death until they accept the apostleship and the authority that Christ put in the church. And they haven't to date. Sadly, this is a millennial sermon. Because those who work and make a lie and who commit the abominations will not be in the millennium or the kingdom of God. I hope with all my heart that people repent of the satanic attitudes and practices that are going on. Meantime, brethren, we need to draw as close to God as we possibly can and provide the fruits of the Spirit of joy and love and peace and patience and forgiveness and love and on and on of the fruit of the Spirit. I hope we can have something far more positive this afternoon and throughout the feast because we're here to be joyous and rejoice before God. Sadly, the kingdom of God will occur and the majority of people will ultimately be saved. But there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's a sad thing, but it will occur. Let's not let it be in of us. Let's draw to God as closely as we can and pray for those who do not have godly attitudes at the moment, but have satanic approaches and are ripping and tearing at the body of Christ. God forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing, but they are.